great week so far. Good to see the Robertsons back here safely and um, hope that we're able to have a fruitful study tonight. We're going to be covering two chapters in the Gospel of John, chapters 5 and 6. And as I mentioned last week, this lesson and the following lesson are two of the biggest chunks of Scripture that we're going to be covering throughout the rest of our study through the Gospel of John. So once we get through these next two weeks, we'll kind of get back to looking at one, maybe two chapters at a time, and those chapters will be a little bit smaller. But tonight we do have over a hundred verses to read, literally, and we are going to read all of those verses. As R.C. Sproul once said, the most important part of any lesson is the reading of God's Word. That'll be the only inerrant and inspired thing I have to give you all tonight. Um, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John 5. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of verses. <laughs> so the way that I broke it up here, just to make it easy, Bell actually gave me this idea. Um, if you have a workbook, do y'all all have? Y'all do not have workbooks. Just to make it easier if you do have a workbook. So Phoenix and Maverick, or not Phoenix Cash and Maverick can share their workbook, and then you guys can share this workbook. And the reason why I want you to have your workbook is. Twofold. First and foremost, just at least while we're reading the text out loud, we'll all be out of the same Bible translation. Number two, you'll notice page 38 through page 45. 38 through 45, you'll see all the verses that are in this section of our study guide. So what I want us to do is if I can get some volunteers to read one page each. So if we have... One volunteer to read one page each. That means we'll need one, two, three, four, five, six. We'll need eight volunteers. So eight volunteers to read. The shortest section will be page 38. Only nine verses. Who'd be willing to read those nine verses? Martine, okay. I'll take 39. So I'll take page 39. Uh, can I get a volunteer to read page 40? 40, I would take 40. Perfect. Uh, four, that's fine. 41? Perfect. 42, great, 43, perfect, 44, perfect, and then 45, one last volunteer to read page 45 for us, take it, all right, uh, I think we have a um, volunteer from Reggie, Reggie's going to take that last page. All right, let me read, uh, or excuse me, Martina's going to read verses 1 to 9, and then I will follow her. And then, again, once you finish, uh, once the person who's before you finishes their page, you just read the following. Um, so, Martina, whenever you're ready, take it away. Thank you. 
The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so... He gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies to me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his life. How, many, how far am I going? Uh, just to 40. To 40. Yeah. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified to me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You, not have, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God for me. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, 
Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe me, his writings, how will you believe my words? After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And then a great multitude followed him, because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were deceived. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and seeing a great multitude coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, son of Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there is much grass in the place, so the men sit down. The number about five thousand. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus Said, truly, this this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and went over to the went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was in the land of great boat. On the following day, the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no boat there, except that one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered, entered the boat with his disciples. But his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias, near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given things. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they also got into the boat and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give to you, because God the Father has set his seal on them. And he, then he said to them, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, It is the work of God that you this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? What will you do? Or what work will you do? Our father received the man of the desert as it is written. He gave him bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I, I say to you, Moses did not give the bread from heaven, but my father gave the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us his bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes in me shall never hunger, and who, who believes in me shall never hunger. But I said to you that you have seen me, that you have seen
not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew himself and the disciples complained about this, he said to him, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were, who they were, who did not believe, and who were betrayed him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him in the room. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you? the twelve, and one of you is a devil. He spoke of Jesus' spirit, the son of Simon. It was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Amen. Well, thank you guys for reading. I know that was a lot of verses, 118 verses, in you fact. Want to break that down now? Well, we're going to try. We, we're, we're definitely not going to touch anywhere near everything that could be said about all the verses we just read together. Um, but just think about this before we dive in. In the early church, it would be commonplace, particularly with the letters. I mean, Gospels would be, re would be read in their totality in front of the entire congregation. 
but the, the letters of Paul, um, Hebrews, the letters of Peter, those would ordinarily be read as an entire unit. It was not uncommon also for the Gospels to be read as an entire unit. And that just goes to show you that historically God's people have, have hungered for the word, not just in bite-sized increments, but in lengthy um, increments. Just to be able to, to hear God's word read verbally is an immense blessing that Christians have given their life for throughout the centuries to ensure that this word would be protected, that it would be preserved, and that it would be passed on from one generation to the next. So I just want us to never lose sight of the privilege that we have just to read God's word, even if it's 118 verses and we know we can't possibly exhaust everything that pertains to that section. Recognize the great privilege that you and I have to be able just to read the word of God in its totality as his people. So with that in mind, just by way of preface and introduction, uh, flip back to page 37. There's a couple of questions there in the workbook that I want us to cover. Last week, the two questions in the drawing near section were personal, and these are more objective in nature. These get really more to uh, things that we can go to Scripture and iron out from the Word of God. They're not something that's subjective or uh, something that should be private or personal. So I, I want us to spend some time answering these questions biblically. Starting with the first, what do you think it means to hunger and thirst spiritually? We talk about hungering and thirsting spiritually. What comes to your mind? How would you go about answering that question? Desire from the scripture and for a like to be to know and grow near to God and his glory. Absolutely. No, that's that's hundred percent true. Love that, Cash. Any other thoughts on hungering or thirsting spiritually? Um, remember Jesus said, a blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? So there there is a divine blessing associated with with, with hungering and thirsting for righteousness and hungering and thirsting for the things of God. So um, any other thoughts about what, what you would say in response to this idea of hungering and thirsting spiritually? I agree, I agree with what Cash said, that uh, in the words, you know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mm. and I kind of equate those two together. Absolutely. And uh, the spiritual... Uh, that desire to, in my way, think to withdraw spiritually, to begin to kind of separate yourself from the world, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. And uh, all this other stuff and mess, and that um, to be able to seek Him in the Word, and uh, that, that's that's my idea, anyway. Uh, yeah. And prayer and just a spiritual mm-hmm. desire. Amen. That's good. You know, I think of a couple places in the Psalter, Psalm 42, uh, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God, right? It's this idea of just being consumed with a desire to be in God's presence, to think about his truth, um, to to pray his truth back to him, to be with God's people, um, to think about what it looks like to live a God-centered and God-exalting life. Those are some things that come to my mind. Or, or like in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law as my meditation all the day. It's, it's just this, for me, I wrote that um, to hunger and thirst spiritually is to earnestly desire to learn all of God's truth, 
that we can on this side of heaven. It's, it's a desire to learn his truth and then to put it into practice. So there's a – Nick said it so well. Hungering and thirsting for God, hungering and thirsting spiritually, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, those are two sides of the same coin. If you hunger and thirst for God, you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. And if you're hungering and thirsting for true righteousness, well, that's going to lead you back to the truth of God, right? Because God is a righteous God, and all of his ordinances, all of his revelation is righteous. It points us into a lifestyle that will bring him glory and will accomplish our spiritual good as well. So now I love those thoughts to that question. Now, number two, and this this kind of takes what we just considered with that question and puts it down on the ground level. How do you fill your spiritual longings? So let's let's make this applicable to our church, right? Because we're all here uh, as, as members of FBC Inez, more or less. Uh, most of you guys here come here on a regular basis. Uh, and and uh, if you're not a member here, you at least have came here a few times in the past. So let's just, let's just make this all relevant to our purpose tonight. As the people of FBC Inez gather together, what can we do in our life as a congregation to fulfill spiritual longings, to hunger and thirst spiritually? What can we do? This right here, absolutely. I was going to say, I don't want to beat the old dog, same old dog to death, but uh, you, you can't remove the Word of God from spirituality. Mm-hmm. And too many people try to do that, and you get a mess. So, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that is always a thing I go back to, it's just got to be the Word. Amen. And you expound from that extremely good footing. Amen. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, the more you can encourage fellow believers, particularly in the same church, the more you can gather together and, and have it be a biblically oriented gathering, Bible study, um, corporate worship on Sunday, Sunday school, any gathering that people can come together and be exposed to God's word. I think that's something that we all need to get behind and really encourage each other to be a part of. Not because it earns our salvation or earns God's favor or anything like that, but because as I mentioned moments ago, it's a great privilege. We have the Word of God. We know exactly what God wants from us to honor Him in this life, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God, profitable to equip us for every good work, right? It, it will lead us to honor God in this life if we will study the Word and apply it. That will accomplish our greatest spiritual longings to be centered and immersed in the word. So that would be my encouragement to us. Let's do our best as a church to encourage our brothers and sisters in this church to come together every time we have opportunities to do so, to hear God's word read, to study it as a congregation, and then to apply it in our lives as we have opportunities to do so, wherever God might lead us, that we'd be faithful to that end. Well, that takes us now to the middle of page 37 into the context. 118 verses. What's the big picture? Well, MacArthur gives us a little a two-paragraph synopsis of what's going on in these two chapters. I'll take the first paragraph. Can I get a volunteer to take the second paragraph? Martina's going to take it. Great. So I'll take the first. MacArthur notes, This section of John's Gospel begins the shift from reservation and hesitation about Jesus as Messiah to outright rejection. The opposition begins with the controversy regarding Jesus' healing of the paralytic man on the Sabbath. Following this miracle, Jesus confronts the Jews' religious hypocrisy with clear statements about his deity. For the first time, 
John reveals the murderous intent of the Jewish leaders. good. Now, the, the last part of that second paragraph, I was surprised that there wasn't a question contained in this section about this idea of Christ's disciples turning away, no longer walking with him as a result of his teaching. So I wanted to open up the floor tonight just to tease that out a little bit. Um, first off, let's, let's make sure we're all on the same page with terminology. Can somebody tell me what it means to be a disciple? What is a disciple? The, the most basic sense of the word. Yeah, follower. Person. Okay, follower. It's a good definition. Any any other thoughts of that disciple? Student. Student. Yep, that's the word I was really going for. So follow. It could be follower in the broad sense, but student or learner. That's that's another um, way of going about defining disciple. So, in what sense we we now we all are on the same page about what it means to be a disciple in the broad sense of the term. In what sense? were the people who followed after Jesus disciples, okay? Because it it says in the text, right, his disciples turned away. They were no longer walking with him. They were no longer following him. So um, how, how how could they be regarded as a disciple at that point? Before or after? I was reading. What did you just say? Yeah, no, so, so like up until they, they turned away from Christ. Um, in what sense were they disciples of Christ? I just want us to talk about this because there are people who believe you can lose your salvation and will use this text as a go-to for that. Um, that they, there are people who followed Christ, they, they, were, they were part of his people, and then they just they turned away and they didn't want to follow him. A lot of people use this as an excuse for uh, carnal Christianity, uh, antinomianism, the idea that you can be following Christ for a period of your life and then turn away. Let me read this first. Yeah. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? They're clearly called his disciples mm-hmm. right there. Right. And they're going to leave in 66. Mm-hmm. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Right. Okay, I'm just clear. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so just based on the definition Cash gave, were they followers of Christ for, for, for all intents and purposes, externally? They were following Christ, right? They were learning from Christ, right? They were students of Christ. That was all true externally. So that leads me to the next question that, that I really want us to get to here tonight. Um, what is the heart of true discipleship? I'm talking about the kind of discipleship that not only externally follows Christ, that not only looks the part to the watching world, but the kind that will not abandon their faith, the kind that will stand before Christ and not have the words said to them, depart from me, I never knew you. What, what's the difference, do you think, between those who walked away from Christ and those who will not walk away? In this context, from the disciples, when Peter said, 
Where else shall we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. What do you think was the difference between those two groups of people? grace, right? That's really what I want you guys to boil down to. Now at the human level, okay, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. At the human level, we have a fundamental decision to make every day, whether or not we're going to follow after Christ, right? We, we can't see things from God's perspective. You and I have a fundamental obligation every single day to obey the truths of scripture as they're clearly revealed in scripture. That's our job. That's what we're left with. But from God's vantage point, anybody who remains faithful to Christ, I'm not talking about making a profession of faith. I'm talking about someone who not only makes a profession of faith, but then the rest of their life is committed and devoted to following Jesus Christ. Those people, the only difference is the grace of God. That's it. Um, We're going to look at some verses here tonight that talk about Jesus never casting out those whom the Father has given to him. That's it. As Witten pointed out, it's just the grace of God. You and I, when we stand before Christ someday, we're going to have no boast of our own for why we stayed in our walk with Christ, why we were committed to him in this life, whereas others fell away. It's going to be because of God's marvelous grace working in and through us from the start to the finish. So that's, that's simply what I wanted us to see. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the chapter, uh, in this chapter of the workbook. But I just wanted to kind of whet your appetite with uh, a thought there because this is a text when I go and evangelize on college campuses. This is a text that's brought up. It says they're disciples. My cousin, you know, he, he made a profession of faith at youth camp 15 years ago. And, and he never goes to church today, but he's a disciple. He believed. You got to make. There's a distinction between what can be seen externally and what's been done internally. That's really what I wanted us to get to today on that point. We'll get we'll get more on that here as we get on in the lesson a bit further. Well, keys to the text. Bottom of page 37, going into page 38. I'm going to read this paragraph and read the passage that's cited in Leviticus 24. Um, this word blasphemy. I think many of you guys have heard that before if you've been in church. Uh, for any period of time. It's a biblical term. MacArthur defines blasphemy as the act of cursing, slandering, reviling, or showing contempt or a lack of reverence for God. In the Old Testament, blaspheming God was a serious crime punishable by death. And he cites Leviticus 24, 15 to 16, which says this, Moses writing, you shall, or the Lord speaking to Moses who wrote, you shall speak to the sons of Israel saying, if anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord. So again, blaspheme, the one who curses, slanders, reviles, or shows contempt or lack of reverence. That person shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. The alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes God's name, they shall be put to death. So blasphemy is a big deal 
to the Jews. Old Covenant Israel, of course, going up to the time of Christ. This is the practice that was to be put in place when God's name was cursed, slandered, reviled, or had a lack of reverence toward. Now, MacArthur continues, The unbelieving Jews of Jesus' day charged Jesus with blasphemy because they thought of him only as a man, but he claimed to be equal with God. Jesus' acceptance of Messiahship and deity had always brought vigorous opposition from the Jewish leaders. Later, the charge of blasphemy was central in Jesus' trial before Caiaphas. So, another important concept that I think will make a big difference in your reading of Scripture and in your efforts to share your faith with unbelievers, particularly if they're a a Jew um, or if they're an atheist who thinks that Christ was just crazy or that he was a um, megalomaniac. There's a lot of those sorts of people in our day day and age. So I want you guys to be aware of of how to think through this idea. Um, Here's the question. How does the Jews claiming that Christ was committing the sin of blasphemy, how does that charge contradict modern claims that Christ was either just a good teacher or that he never claimed to be God? Muslims, for example, will say, listen to many uh, academic debates between uh, Protestant Reformed Christians and Muslim apologists. They will say Jesus never claimed to be God. Okay? Now, how how do what we see here, John 5, right? They're going to stone Jesus for the sin of blasphemy in accordance with Leviticus, right? How does that contradict that claim? Well, Jesus, he was just a good moral teacher, or he never claimed to be God, or he didn't know what he was talking about. He was, he was just crazy. He was a religious leader, tried to form his own cult, but people got carried away with this idea that he really was divine. How would you, how would you respond to that based on what we see here in John's gospel? Or if I could put it a different way, maybe a little more clear. Did the Jews think that Jesus was not claiming to be God? Let me ask you that question. What did the Jews think that Jesus was doing? Exactly, right? So if the first century Jews thought that he was claiming to be God, would it be completely outrageous for us some 2,000 years later to say, and Jesus never claimed to be God. It was all a big misunderstanding. Do you see what it is? They were going to kill him, too. That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't like, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, the Jews right, the Jews were very rigid in their love for the Old Testament law. It's great to love the Old Testament law, but I mean these these guys they sought to ensure that that law was obeyed to a T. They were legalists. They believed in a, in a works, self-righteousness system of salvation. So in their eyes, um, if there was a chapter and verse in the Old Testament they could go to to justify stoning somebody who was blaspheming, they were going to do it. As Nick said, this wasn't just some threat to try to get Jesus to be quiet. Like These people actually believed that they were honoring God by wanting to stone Christ. So my, my prayer for us is that when we interact with unbelievers, whether it be family members, friends, 
people that we see on an airplane, at work, on a college campus, wherever. My prayer is that we never undermine the radical claims that Jesus made. Jesus made radical claims. If he wasn't God, let me just make it clear. If he wasn't God, he deserved to be stoned. He deserved the condemnation that the Jews allocated towards him. Anybody who claims to be God is insane if they're not God. They're not a good person. They're not a good teacher. That's the point that I want you guys to have from this reality. Can I throw something in here? Go for it, brothers. With talking about, you know, because we're, we're getting real Jehovah's Witnessy here, you know, as far as their... I like that. Confronting them on what they believe, not the deity of Christ. Right. When you go here, and I, it's funny, I wrote this as we was going through, I wrote J.W. verse on 37. Let's go. Uh, because that is, a, that is an answer you would give, verse 18. He made himself equal with God. That's what it was saying. But 37, they will say this in response. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. So they would say that it's Jesus saying that you've never seen God. That's how they, that, that's, that's something they will throw back at you on that. So you understand what I'm saying on that? Well, yeah. They say you've never heard his voice. If Jesus is God, then they're saying he didn't, but Jesus said he never heard the Father. Yeah. He would never seen his form. Well, they would say, well, if Jesus is God, he's saying himself that he's not God. Right. You understand what no. yeah, I, They will turn that back around right. on you. So what's our answer? Yeah, so, so my response to that would be twofold. For one, um, he's distinguishing between the Father and the Son. So I would, I would point him to that reality, which we know throughout the Old Testament that Jews heard um, the Father. Um, I mean, burning bush, pillar of... Um, light and the wilderness wandering, so on and so forth. But I would also make a distinction between hearing with the outer ear and hearing spiritually. These Jews had completely closed their ears and their minds to the truth of God, which was consummately revealed in the person and work of Christ. Yeah. Um, so, and, and there are, there are many times in scripture, um, I can provide some cross-references later because um, I've, I've had to do this actually when people have asked questions like this. But there's, there are times where the New Testament distinguishes between hearing, as in hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth, and hearing in the sense of I hear it spiritually to the point where I'm ready to make a decision with my life. Um, hearing that leads to salvation or leads to obedience versus just hearing um, words come out. Um, so I would, I would distinguish between that as well. The other thing, a uh, third that just came to my mind, um, because of Jesus's divinity, the second person of the Trinity, he has a special relationship with the Father and the Spirit that no human being ever will have. There, there is a level of intimacy uh, and, and a level of divine self-disclosure within the Godhead that only God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will ever know and enjoy. It's just part of the creator-creature distinction. Uh, that There is something within God himself that entails a, a richer and deeper level of intimacy that is fundamental to the being of God. That humanity as creature simply cannot and will never experience. 
So that's a third thing that I would point out to them. Say, hey, listen, even insofar, if you don't want to take the spiritual application here, as God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, their ability to communicate with one another in the divine essence is something that we cannot and will not experience because we're created. Right? So there's that creator-creature distinction. That's another place I would go just off the cuff here. Sorry. No, that's good. No, that's a great question. I'm always down for some mock apologetics work. Well, signs. Um, You'll notice there we don't need to read through those because we've read them in previous lessons. Just notice, again, um, there are eight signs in the Gospel of John that are fundamental to John's purpose. Remember, he, he stated his purpose for writing the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verse 31. He wrote this Gospel to convince his readers that Jesus was the Son of God and so that believing in him, they would have everlasting life. That's the purpose for this Gospel. And John puts eight signs in that Gospel to prove to the reader, hey, this is why Jesus is God. Uh, he turned water into wine. He healed the royal official's son. He healed the lame man. He fed the multitude. He walked on water. He healed the blind man. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He caught that, those abundance of fish after his resurrection. So there's eight signs that MacArthur notes in that section. If you want to review that, I'd encourage you to do so at your own time. Uh, but Lord willing, we'll be able to actually see each of those signs developed as we work through the rest of the gospel. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, unbelievers commit the sin of blasphemy all the time. Um, I, I would even go so far as say, you know, as it's written in that Leviticus 24 text. I would say taking the Lord's name in vain is a sin of blasphemy, just in terms of how blasphemy is defined and how that Leviticus 24 text is. Remember, the Jews had a really great reverence for the name of God, so much so that they would abbreviate the name of God. Um, they would even write out the whole thing. Like they, had this, they had such a uh, reverence and a respect for God and His glory um, that they wanted to do anything in their power to, to, to commit slander or to show contempt or, or to show disrespect for God, his name. Um, so I would, I would even say, to your point, Frank, that even taking the Lord's name in vain is a form of blasphemy. That, that can be committed even by believers if we're not careful. Um, and that, that should lead us to praise God for the cross, right, for the gospel. Um, but yeah, no, unbelievers, to your question, yes, they do commit the sin of blasphemy. Uh, quite often. Um, false religion is blasphemy, right? Um, so it can even go to, to different religious expressions in the world. Those are all forms of blasphemy because they don't worship the one true living God. Well, page 46, uh, question one. Um, get into some of these questions here. Number one, we see this question from MacArthur. He asks, how exactly did Jesus cure the paralytic man and what was significant about this? So go to verses 5 through 9. Those are the verses that deal with this miracle. Chapter 5, verses 5 through 9. And let's just make some observations. 
observations from this passage. What do you see about this healing that stands out to you? Yeah. So, so Jesus, with his word, do you see, noted, he, he said, take up your bed and walk, right? So Jesus, he cured him with his words, right? Um, so that, that's one, actually one of the things that I noted, that Jesus, um, he didn't touch him. Like, he just spoke, take up your mat and walk. He was healed. And I noted, um, at least I noted three ways that Jesus cured this man. And I actually, I think there's a parallel pointing to Christ's deity between the miracle and what we see God doing throughout all of Scripture. So in terms of Jesus curing the paralytic man with his words, God creates and restores by his word, right? He, he creates life. He restores life through his spoken word. That, that's something we see Jesus doing that I think points to the fact that he's God. Uh, what else do we see here um, with the paralytic being healed. Was this something that took time? No. no, it was immediate, right? So it was it was instantaneous, it was immediate, there was no question about it. This man has been healed. It's not like the modern day faith healers where they go into a crowd at a conference and they pick out the ones who really don't have that severe of ailments and then they pick them to take them up on stage and do a little trick. And then maybe they got healed, maybe they didn't get healed. No, this was an unquestionable manifestation of divine power. And um, I think this shows, speaking to Christ's divine nature, it shows that he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's no limitation to Christ's power. If he wants to do something, he can do it. He's God. Um, so long as it doesn't contradict his own nature, right? He can't lie. He can't, um, he can't steal. He can't do any of those things because God is truth. He's faithful, so on and so forth. So Jesus can do anything in accordance with God's nature because he is God incarnate. What about um, the time that he healed this man? What day was it? Saturday, right? Sabbath. Um, now, why do you think he healed on the Sabbath? And Jesus does this all the time. You look at the Gospels, constantly doing things on the Sabbath. And he actually says why um, he alludes to it in this verse 17. Uh, he says, my father has been working until now and I have been working. And then in Mark two, he gives the answer to the question that I'm really looking for. Why do you think Jesus liked doing things on the Sabbath so much? He's the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark two twenty eight. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, anytime he does something on the Sabbath, he's saying, hey, I made the Sabbath. 
I'm sovereign over the Sabbath. I can do what I want on the Sabbath. I'm God. I created the Sabbath for man. Like, like the Sabbath seeks to serve man. I'm not bound to the Sabbath. I'm the guy who created the Sabbath. I'm God. So it shows his lordship over the Sabbath. Now, number two, verses 10 to 16. How did the Jews react to the miracle? Verse 12 to 16. Huh? They wanted to kill him, right? And we've talked about this already, but just to make sure you are paying attention. Why? What was the biggest reason why? It's in the text. Verse 16. Did on the Sabbath. Do you guys know what the Sabbath meant to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all the religious officials of that day? How many of you guys have heard of um, the Mishnah before? Okay, that might be a little out there. So the Mishnah is a collection of oral Jewish rabbinic teachings and traditions that Israelites would would um, basically view to the same extent as authoritative as the Old Testament. So between the um, the closing of the Old Testament canon, Book of Malachi, sometime um, about four hundred to four hundred fifty years before Christ comes. The Mishnah during that time was assembled. And in the Mishnah, you had extra biblical rules, traditions, and practices that the Pharisees and Sadducees and the religious leaders viewed as equally authoritative to God's word. And in the Mishnah, they created all of these different practices and all of these different regulations that you had to be in adherence with to quote-unquote maintain God's favor. And a lot of those rules and traditions were centered on the Sabbath. So they created burdens on the Sabbath that are nowhere found in the Word of God. And what did they do? They took those burdens and they applied it to the life of the ordinary Jew. And they would say, hey, you can't do such and such on the Sabbath because it's part of our religious tradition, part of our oral tradition, the Mishnah. Um, So when Jesus starts doing things on the Sabbath, he's not only showing his own lordship over the Sabbath, he's also saying, hey, listen, your traditions, they don't mean anything, eternally speaking. They're irrelevant. They're not divine commandments. They're not binding on the conscience. They don't earn salvation or earn favor with God. That's exactly what we see him doing here. It's fascinating. Jesus is going after the hypocrisy and the legalism of the religious leaders of that day. It's fascinating to see. Any thoughts or questions on that before we go to number three? Even the idea of the commandments, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Right. Christ is keeping it holy just by the fact that he's doing what he sees the Father That's right. And to deal with Right. Right. No, you're exactly right. And um, as we'll see in Matthew 23 in a few moments, um, he actually, to your point, Reggie, he goes after the leaders and says, hey, like you guys, you guys neglected the weightier things of the law. You know, you you guys have missed the whole point on so many different areas. Um, 
Like, like, why would you be mad about a man being healed on the Sabbath? You'll pull your own ox out of the ditch on the Sabbath if you have to, right? Um, no, it's all, all, all really important stuff. And um, that, that's, again, it's a 30,000-foot flyover of all the different nuances that were undergirding first-century Judaism. But when you understand that there's this whole other set of traditions and rituals that were being practiced by the Jewish religious leaders and imposed on the ordinary Jew— it really brings to light the full scope of what Christ is doing there in the first century. It's remarkable um, to see. But number three, um, and this may have been better suited for those who did the homework, but um, in verses 31 to 47 of chapter 5, what four witnesses does Jesus cite as testifying to his identity as the Messiah? So if you have a Bible, it actually might have the, like my wife's got a Bible and it literally gave her the answer uh, in the headings of that Bible. Yeah. So uh, if you have a Bible uh, that has those headings, feel free to read them out because, I mean, it, it, it could take some time to, to find them if you weren't able to read the text before the lesson. Witness of John. Yep. Witness. Words, yep. Witness of the Father. Mm-hmm. Witness of the Scripture. There you go. That's four. That's the ones I got. So look, so, so four witnesses, right? And it's the other thing. Um, let me, true or false, in the Old Testament, when evaluating the truth of a claim, particularly a religious claim, but it could also be a legal claim, um, it needed to be corroborated on two or three witnesses. Is that true or false? You heard of that verse before? Two or three witnesses? Jesus even says that at certain points in the New Testament Gospels. So we got four witnesses here. So, so John did one better than the two or three. He gave us four. John the Baptist is a witness of Jesus being the Messiah, Son of God. Jesus' works themselves witness to him being the Messiah and Son of God. God the Father, right? Think about it at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Um, we're going to see in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And um, Jesus says, Father, glorify um, I don't remember if he says your name or the son, um, but God speaks audibly from heaven and says, I have glorified, I've glorified it. So God the Father is constantly throughout the Gospels, um, at least two instances where he is audibly speaking his approval of Jesus' work. So um, the Father is confirming Christ. He is my son. He is the Messiah. And then the Old Testament, right? Right. the, the, the Old Testament, if you were at gospel camp for some of you youth, um, the Old Testament is full of references that point to Jesus. In the foyer here at FBC Inez, there's a document that has just one explicit reference of Christ in every Old Testament book. It's either a prophecy or an allusion to Christ. Um, go, go, go read through that list. I encourage you to do so. You'll see Jesus being pointed to in so many amazing ways throughout the Old Testament. Great witnesses to Christ's deity and Messiahship in the Old Testament. Well, number four, uh, again, maybe better for those who did the homework because it covers a lot of verses. Um, But where all did Jesus travel throughout the passage? Let's see if somebody can look them up really quickly. I found three places. Um... This is, again, may seem like kind of a silly question, but my friends, if you go to seminary or Bible college, 
one of the most important things that you'll learn about studying the Bible is making observations from the text. Just getting in the Word and being able to pull out things that you see in the text. So, kind of a simple question, but it, it forces us to go into the verses and make some observations. So where, where are we at? Uh, verse 1 of John 5. I'll give you the, ver, uh, the verses to kind of help you out a little bit. Where they start at? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There's one. All right, so chapter 6. Beginning of chapter 6, where are we at now? Galilee. Sea of Galilee, Galilee right? Yep. And then, yep. and then Capernaum. So he's gone to three places. I didn't have time uh, or the means. I don't have a projector in here. Um, and I'm not very tech savvy either. But I didn't have the time or the means to pull up a map, which is what MacArthur asks us to do. To pull up a Bible map and trace through all the places that we see Jesus going between chapter 5 and 6. So if you have a map in your Bible... Um, or if you have a phone or computer, feel free to look at that later. See the distance. See the geography of where Jesus was traveling. Uh, might help you bring the narrative to life a little bit from chapters 5 and 6. Was it about 90 miles from Jerusalem to... I don't know the exact mileage, but I know it's a lot of distance. And MacArthur actually, I think if you have a MacArthur study Bible, it might even say this uh, as you go into chapter 6. It's, it's speculated that the events in 5 and the events in 6, that there was a gap between those events just because of the amount of distance that it, it shows Jesus traveling in. That's another important point. Not every gospel is written chronologically. So um, a lot of people will say, well, see, look, the Bible, has all, the, the Bible has all these contradictions because if you just go to the gospels, they don't even all happen in the same order. So obviously those are inconsistencies. Those are contradictions. Well, it wasn't the point of the gospel writers to write things chronologically. So uh, the Gospel of Luke actually recounts the life of Jesus in chronological order. But Matthew, Mark, and John, they have particular themes that give shape to how they organize and structure their gospel. So even if there is a significant gap in time between chapter 5 and chapter 6... The gap in time is inconsequential. John's purpose is to, again, he's trying to thread these, these signs and these events and these teachings of Jesus that testify to him being the Son of God so that those who read this gospel might come to saving faith in Christ. So it's always important to remember that the purpose for which a book was written, that is going to dictate how the book is structured. Just some food for thought there. Um, but yeah, Wayne, uh, don't know the exact distance, but uh, because of the, the lengthy distance there, it's speculated there might have been a gap in time between chapter 5 and 6. Um, now, Matthew 23, uh, it's in the going deeper section, bottom of page 46, it notes that in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 33, that Jesus assessed the Jewish relig- uh, religious leaders who began to openly oppose him. So, the spiritual condition of the Jewish religious leaders is laid bare in Matthew 23, verses 1 to 33. So, because we've already been here for an hour, because of how much we had to read at the beginning, I'm going to assign that for you for homework. I want you to read those verses at some point this week, between now and our next week's study And what I want you to do is I want you to think about what Jesus saw in the religious leaders of that era. What did he see 
that gave him such great cause for concern. And ultimately, it led to him publicly repudiating them and calling them out. He called them out for their hypocrisy. You'll, you'll notice number five. I'll give you my answer to that because I, I work through the text. If, if you have a pen and you have a workbook, see if you agree with my observations. I, I, I wrote uh, six dangers of organized religion from Matthew 23, 1 to 33. Um, and this, this correlates with the text. So in, in verses 1 to 4, I noted hypocrisy. Jesus notes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all the religious leaders. And, and that's also found in verses 24 to 33. So verses 1 to 4 and verses 24 to 33, I, I thought that the danger of hypocrisy was mentioned there. Um, the second danger that I found is pride. And that, I believe, correlates with verses 5 to 12 of Matthew 23. Third, um, I wrote false assurance of salvation stemming from poor doctrine. So false assurance of salvation stemming from poor doctrine. Verse 13, just verse 13 of chapter 23. Um, Verse 14, closely related to that, I think stemming from their poor theology. Manipulation of the vulnerable. Verse 14, manipulation of the vulnerable. Number five, zealous for tradition. And we're not talking, and we all have tradition, right? We, we, even as Baptists, we, we do have traditions that we, um, that we do and, and that, we, um, that we do as a church. Like, for example, some churches take the Lord's Supper every week. Some take it once a month. Some take it once a quarter. Some take it twice a quarter. The timing, not the Lord's Supper, that's a biblical um, command, but the, the, the timing or the frequency of the Lord's Supper, that's a tradition that varies from church to church. So there are some traditions that aren't inherently sinful. Um, I think a case can be made for taking the Lord's Supper every week. I think a case can be made for taking it monthly or uh, quarterly, whatever a church does. I think a case can be made for those things. There's not a chapter and verse uh, command that says, if you meet X amount of times, this is how many times you need to take the Lord's Supper. So I think it's a matter of conscience. So there, there, we all have traditions. But when I talk about being zealous for tradition from the text, I'm talking about the Mishnah or the Talmud, those extra biblical um, traditions that the Jews believed earned God's favor and that the Jews believed all Israelites were bound to keep by God's authority. So unbiblical tradition. And then sixth, I put arbitrarily picking and choosing commandments to obey. And that's in verse 23 of, of chapter Five, zealous for tradition. Yeah, um, sorry. Uh, yeah, number five, zealous for tradition, verses 15 to 22. And then uh, six, picking and choosing, or excuse me, arbitrarily picking and choosing commands to obey. Um, that's the other thing. Legalists, they love the commandments and they love the traditions and they love the rules that they can obey. They don't like the ones that contradict their lifestyle. Um, Jesus calls them out on Hey, you like to obey certain parts of God's word, but you don't like to obey other parts. So, uh, again, that kind of gets back to hypocrisy. So, again, read that chapter between now and next Wednesday. That would be my encouragement to you, but I won't hold you accountable. That's between you and the Lord. Number six, what was the reaction of the masses 
to Christ's feeding of the 5,000? And in what ways is this still a common response to Jesus? So go to verses 25 and 26 of chapter 6. John 6, verses 25 and 26. So verse 25, it signifies, this is their initial reaction after Jesus had fed them. Somebody read verses 25 and 26 for me. Uh, uh, chapter 6, uh, verses 25 and 26 of John 6. No, it's okay. Those are good verses too. Yeah, that's it. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Very good. So, how'd they respond to his miracle? How'd they respond just to the miracle, right? What did, what did they do? Did they, did they let the miracle happen and they went back about their life and, and just let things go? Said, oh, we, we got fed by um, five barley loaves and two fish and, and, and there was 20,000 of us, 5,000 men and all the women and children that were there. I mean, it was the craziest thing I've ever experienced. What's for, what's for dinner? Was that the mindset these guys? No, they, they literally followed him to the other side of a sea. These guys had just experienced one of the craziest things that ever happened in the history of the world. And they wanted more, right? And Jesus calls them out on it. Verse 26, you know, you guys guys really like the miracles. You really liked getting fed. And then he gives them a warning in verse 27, which starts them off on everything else he's going to say. He says, don't labor for the food which perishes. In other words, don't just be concerned with things of this world with the miracles themselves, he says you need to labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. In other words, you need to be concerned more about the spiritual things that I have to say and that I have to offer you. Be concerned about those things more so than just seeing a a cool miracle. As great as the miracle was and is, right? I wish I could have been there to see it. I'm sure many of you guys, I'd I'd hope all of y'all would have wanted to have been there to see that. Um, Now, how, how is that still seen today, though? I think that's, that's really what matters to us here tonight. Let's make it practical. How is there a modern fascination with Jesus today that's not necessarily a sign of salvation or spiritual maturity? How are people fascinated with Jesus today in general? What's the biggest perversion of Christianity in America today. What, yeah, what do we call that? The Joel Osteen group. What do we call those people? Health, wealth, and prosperity group, right? The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. That's the, that, that essentially, my friends, that's, that's what we're seeing here. Health, wealth, and prosperity theology in the first century. Man, Jesus, he's a healer. He can feed tens of thousands of people. Um, he's got a big crowd following him because he's cool and he can do all these really great stuff. I want, I want in on that. That's what I want to be a part of. That's what we see today. Man, and that church, 
And they have concerts there. They got a coffee shop in the lobby. They got a great band. They got valet parking service. Their pastor's got over a million followers on Twitter. I want in on that. But it's all temporal. There's no spirituality to it. They don't care about the hard sayings and the biblical sayings of Jesus. They want a Savior that will allow them to lavish in their sins versus be saved from their sins. They want to be able to live however they want to live. They don't want to submit to his lordship. That's what, that's what the common response is in our day, my friends. That's what we saw in the first century in John 6. That's what we see today. People like Jesus for what he can give them in this life. Not for what he expects of his true disciples, both now and for eternity future. Which is surrender to his lordship by faith. Jesus wants those who receive him as their Lord and Savior, not just as something that he can give. He's more than a cosmic butler or a genie in a bottle. But unfortunately, that's how most Christians view him in our day. He's someone that can make my life better. So, thoughts, questions on that before we move on? All right, number seven. Summarize in your own words what Christ meant when he said, I am the bread of life. And in what ways have you experienced this truth? So um, what do you think it meant when, when Jesus said, I am the bread of life? What do you think that meant? What was he saying there? Where in the Old Testament is bread coming down from heaven, as it were? Manna, yeah. Where do we see that? Exodus, right? The wilderness wanderings. So what, so what do you think, when Jesus says, I'm the bread that the Father has provided, I am the bread, what do you think would have went through their heads at that point? Yeah. I'm the true provision. I am the one that the Father has given to satisfy your soul. And whoever eats of me will never hunger. That's what he was saying. Um, you can eat bread, so you can stuff your face with two large pizzas. You're going to be full for probably the rest of the night. You might even get sick. But the next day, you're going to be hungry again. You're going to need more. You're going to need more food, more sustenance. But spiritually, Jesus Christ, if you receive him by faith alone and surrender to his lordship, he will satisfy you for eons and eons into eternity future. You'll never hunger. Your sins will be forgiven. You will receive the satisfaction for your soul that you desperately crave as one who's been created in the image of God. Hope that's an encouragement to you from the words of Christ. Now, bottom of page 47, there is a paragraph there, truth for today. And we have one more question to cover after that. So if I can get a volunteer to read the bottom of page 47, and then we'll wrap up with one final question. Go for it, brother. Salvation is not through a creed, a church, a ritual, a pastor, a priest, or any other such human means, but through Jesus Christ, who said, Come to me. To come is to believe to the point of submitting to his lordship. Mm. I am the bread of life, Jesus declared. He who comes to me will, shall not hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. These words come and believe in parallel, just as our hunger and thirst. Coming to Christ is believing in him. 
which results in no longer hungering and thirsting. Other biblical synonyms for believing in Christ include confessing Him, receiving Him, eating and drinking Him, and hearing Him. Amen. Amen. Well, number nine. Uh, that, was good, that was a good explanation. Yeah. Hey, you might, you might quote that. Uh, yeah, maybe quote that in a future sermon. We can, for those of us who came to the study night, we say, hey, I was there. I was there uh, when, uh, when we read that. That's right. That's right. From, from, from Pope MacArthur. He gave us the, he gave us the word. <laughs> okay. Well, no, uh, page 48, um, you'll notice uh, reflecting on the text, Personal response at the bottom, you know, that's, that's for your own reflections. And then uh, number 8 and 10, those are more personal, subjective questions. So you're more than welcome to reflect on those on your own time. But I think number 9 is relevant for us being here tonight because we, we have to deal with the text. It's objective. It's, it's not something that's personal per se. Um, number 9, according to John chapter 6, verses 37 to 44... And verse 65, who is responsible for our salvation and what are the implications of this? So, um, and then you'll notice uh, verses to consider at the bottom, Romans 3, 1 to 19, Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Those verses, if you've never read those verses, which I think there's probably a likelihood that at least somebody in here, just given the diversity of ages represented, have not read those verses in full. Go read those verses, uh, especially the Ephesians 2 passage. Uh, I, I like to throw verse 10 in there as well because it's really a package deal. Um, for those of you who went to gospel camp, we, you know, we talked about that a little bit. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I think that might be the clearest explanation in all of the Bible as to how salvation works. Uh, verses, I'll break it down to you. Verses 1 to 3, Ephesians 2, is who we were. That's us pre-salvation. That's every sinner prior to salvation. Verses 1 to 3, Ephesians 2. Verses 4 to, um, verses four to 7 is what God did. So this is who we were. This is how God brought us from that state of unconverted, spiritually dead, verses 1 to 3. This is how he saves us, verses 4 to 7 of Ephesians 2. And then verses 8 to 10, why we worship. You will have a declaration from the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of in light of the fact that God has saved us by his sovereign grace, we now respond with a lifestyle devoted to worshiping him. So that, that would be my encouragement. Read Romans 3, 1 to 19, and Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, or 1 to 10, rather. I'm looking at it in my book. Uh, include verse 10 in there, uh, if you can. But question 9, those verses in John 6, what do we see? What do we see about our salvation? This, is, this might be the most important question we cover tonight, and it's fitting that we'll close with it because hopefully it'll be a lasting thought that we can take away from us as we leave here. What do you see in those verses? Verse 65 is largely a reiteration of verse 44. So just look, let's just look at um, verses 37 to 44. Uh, got to say something. Yeah. All right. So, God alone can say Okay. Uh, here's a quick thought. 37 to 40. All these are impossible things that a man can do. 
a man cannot, a man cannot do these things. Um, skip 37. For I have come down from heaven not to do, do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, I lose nothing. Mm. But, raise it, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. And these are talking about things that only God can do. All these things. That's right. Only what God can do. Which includes verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me. Mm-hmm. So salvation in and of itself, the whole total, total, total thing of it is only something that God produces. Yeah. From beginning to end to... Right. And, and number four, in verse 44... Um, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. Like, no, like that's a that's a statement. R.C. Sproul, we quote him a lot here. Um, phenomenal theologian, um, author, preacher. If, if you've never read Sproul, if you've never listened to Sproul, please go and spend some time uh, acquainting yourself with his lessons with Ligonier Ministries. But he says in this, like in his book, Chosen by God, in regard to this verse, verse 44, he writes, when, John, or when uh, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He, he's saying that's a statement of ability. That's what, that's what he's saying. He's like, he's like, no one can do this. And that's what uh, Nick was saying. Is, is, this is something that only God can do. Man can't save himself. God must be the one to draw him to saving faith, right? Um, and then that's where that Ephesians 2 passage comes in. Again, go read that tonight, please, if you've never read it. I'm going to make my wife read it tonight. So, um, you know, make your siblings and parents read it. Um, verses 1 to 10 of Ephesians 2. It is salvation explained from start to finish. Um, but any questions or comments about... Anything we've discussed tonight, uh, any crazy cult-like uh, rebuttals, I guess, as, as Nick put it, no, no Jehovah's Witness uh, questions or anything? No. No? Covered a lot of ground. Yeah, good. That's good stuff. Good. Well, can, go- I, can I circle back to Frank's question about blasphemy? You may. All blasphemy is forgiveness except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There you go. And a believer cannot commit that unpardonable sin. That's right. You understand that? A believer cannot do that. Which is the rejection of, of Christ. Of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Yeah, the Holy Spirit rejection of Christ. Yes. Yeah. A believer cannot commit the unpardonable sin. I just want to make that clear. So you yeah. No, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, glad glad to be here with y'all tonight. Um, I know we, we covered a lot of grounds, a lot of verses. Bear with me next week. Going to be another big chunk of verses. Hey, it's the way the publisher made the material. Take it up with John MacArthur and Thomas Nelson books and them. I'm just the guy that gets us together on Wednesday night. So uh, we'll get through. We'll get through next week, and then we'll be back to one to two chapters uh, that are a little bit more manageable. But let's pray. And um, hope you guys have a great rest of your week. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is so precious. It's life-giving. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit who gives 
who gives new life to all those whom you gave to the Son from before the foundation of the world. And as we know from the Ephesians 2 text that we've mentioned several times here in the past few minutes in passing, while we were dead in trespasses and sins, God, being rich in mercy, rescued us from those sins and from the transgression and from the condemnation and from the judgment that those sins are deserving of. Father, I pray that every person here tonight would celebrate the glory of the gospel, that we would never grow complacent or indifferent to these truths. We hear them every week. By by your grace, Father, you've given us a pastor and spiritual leaderships across our deacon body who are faithful to your word, and we hear truth every week. But God, may it never become mundane or ordinary to us. As I mentioned earlier tonight, Father, may we never lose sight of how incredible it is that some 2,000 years after the writing of Scripture, we have the Old and New Testaments preserved in so many different languages. We have more manuscripts of the Word of God than any other ancient manuscript ever. It's not even close, Father. It's because you have been so kind to reveal yourself, not only in this world, but also in special revelation, in Scripture. And I pray, God, we would be those who earnestly seek out learning the truths that you have for us in the Bible, sharing those truths with others, living them out before a watching world. Father, help us to be encouraging to those in our church body to call them to be a part of our our gatherings when we study your word and we worship you, Lord, that we would never forsake the the gathering or the assembling together, but that rather, Father, instead of forsaking those things, that we would be here encouraging one another to love and good deeds. God, it is our prayer you be glorified in our local church, that we would be a gospel light to Inez and to all the communities around us, and that as individuals, Father, we would be who you've called us to be in Christ. We all have different gifts. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different futures that you've authored, Father. But insofar as it depends on us, as we make choices on a daily basis, as we go through life, Father, may the ultimate desire of our hearts, may the forefront of our thinking be to God be the glory in what we say, do, and think. So as we leave here tonight, Father, I pray that everything we've discussed would be etched into our mind, that the Spirit would begin working to apply them to our lives as needed, and that you would keep us safe throughout the rest of this week as we prepare to gather on the Lord's Day to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for times such as these, Father, that point to that end, to that that reality of of worshiping you as you desire to be worshipped in part on this side of glory and someday whether at the return of Christ during our earthly lives or at the moment you call us home, we will be with you face to face and we will worship you perfectly without sin and you will be glorified as you have intended to be in all of your people. We pray all of this in Jesus Christ, who is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Amen.